0: all right here we are again we're going to see if we can finish chapter two and then we'll try to wrap up chapter three and four tomorrow um i guess there's nothing we need to mention all good so once again uh you know when When any of us have an opportunity to share the word with anyone else or open the Bible and teach, uh, I think we all, if we're really serious about it and we're really awake about it, we all feel inadequate. We all realize that uh, this is something that requires supernatural activity. Uh, Only God can touch the souls of men and only God, the Holy Spirit, can take the word and apply it to our souls. So once again, let's just pray that God will do what he alone can do during the hour that we have together. Our Father, we are thankful again for the grace that always comes to us through your word. We're thankful, Father, for the gift that you give to us, a mind to think, a soul that has the ability to make decisions, and with that comes great responsibility We have the option of receiving or rejecting your word. We know that from the very beginning of creation, your plan was to work in cooperation with the greatest of your creation, which was the man and the woman. And Father, you have chosen to share your great work with us. And so as we open your word, it's our prayer that God, the Holy Spirit, will equip us and instruct us and illuminate us to the truths of your word. Particularly in any given class, there may be a lot of information, but there's always that one thing that may relate to an individual, that one statement that may convict a soul, or that one promise or principle that can make a difference in a life. So, Father, accomplish the work that you have brought us together to accomplish today. And we will be thanking you throughout all eternity for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. So we left off in Ruth 2.12, and Boaz is commending Ruth. And just recently, as we met together with uh, several young pastors and their wives, and I had the opportunity to uh, share with them some principles out of the book of Ruth, Uh, We see in Boaz a real model for a man. He is strong, he is mighty, he is respected, but he is considerate of the very least. In those days and in those times, the average attitude to a Moabite would be antagonism or hostility or at the very least neglect. Here this, this mighty man of Bethlehem stoops to show kindness and consideration to this young widow who's come out of Moab. And it's just really a beautiful story and a beautiful picture uh, as we see all the way through Boaz being a type of Christ, a picture of what our Lord has done for each and every one of us. And I'm sure that uh, if you think about it, if you really dwell on what God has done for you and what he has given you, Uh, through the gift of eternal life and his watch care and his provision, you would feel very much like Ruth expresses herself, why in the world would you stoop to show kindness to such a one as me? But You'll notice that Boaz said, the Lord repay your work, verse 12, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. That phrase is a statement of saving faith. She has come to the Lord in saving faith. There are other passages that you may want to jot down. I'll just read one of them to you in Psalm 36 and verse 7. David says, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. So the idea of coming under the shadow of God's wings, you'll see it again in Psalm 57, verse 1, in Psalm 61, verse 4, in Psalm 63, verse 7, and of course the very famous Psalm 91, verse 1, uh, which many of us know about uh, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Probably the most famous use of this uh, phrase or this picture is actually in Matthew 23. You remember when Jesus wept over Jerusalem and he used this figure, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you would not. Uh, It's very interesting too that... uh, Some years ago, I can't remember when this happened, uh, it was after I had left Kansas, but I read the story of a prairie chicken hen. uh, When they were burning off the prairie, she had gathered her chicks under her wings and the fire had burned her and the chicks had actually survived. That's a picture of divine protection, providential care. So I want to pause for just a moment because I want to talk a little bit about faith. You know, when we hit key concepts, key ideas in the Bible, it's important for us to define them. We throw around terms a lot. We talk about substitutionary sacrifice. What does that actually mean? Or we use theological terms like propitiation. What does propitiation mean? Or reconciliation. When we come across these in scripture, people who are sitting out there and listening uh, oftentimes don't understand what the definition of that word is. What does it actually mean? Uh, Another one that gets thrown around a lot and people haven't a clue, if you ask people to define words, they don't have the faintest idea what they are, is sanctification. What is sanctification? How do you define it? What does it mean to be sanctified? Uh, Another one that we hear all the time, godly. What does it mean to be godly? You know, in a lot of people's minds, that just means that you're a good person. You do the right thing. But the Bible defines its own terms, and we need to make sure that we stick with the definitions that it gives us. For example, when we talk about godliness, since I mentioned godly, the idea of godliness is clearly defined for us in 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness. And how does he define godliness? He defines godliness as God being manifest in the flesh, being observed by angels, humbling himself among men. He goes through several descriptive terms that talk about the person of Christ coming in human flesh, dwelling among us, and that is what he calls the mystery of godliness. So when we talk about godly, are we talking about just a good person, a nice person, a kind person? Or are we talking about a person that is actually Christ-like? Because that's what godly is. So we come across the word faith, and there's a lot of confusion in people's minds about faith. I mentioned it a little while ago. Uh, We live in an age when people are redefining what it means to believe. When the scripture says believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, the biblical definition of believing, that of a little child accepting facts that are presented versus the way it's defined today. Believing means that you are making a wholehearted commitment. You are vowing to always be faithful. You are going to hold true to the end and all of a sudden, the focus shifts from the object of faith to the person who's believing you probably heard people say, I wish I had stronger faith. Well, how do you build stronger faith? You don't just work it up. Uh, Someone says, I'm praying for this, and I'm just really believing that it's going to happen. Well, that's false faith. That is not faith from a biblical point of view. Faith from a biblical point of view is believing what God has said. We believe what has been revealed. And we need to define faith from a biblical point of view. Otherwise we find ourselves trying to produce something or work something up uh, and it it just doesn't work. Uh, I remember a Christian lady that lived near us and her husband came down with cancer and she worked herself up to the conviction that God was going to heal her husband. And she said, I just know I've, I've developed my faith. My faith is strong. God is going to heal my husband Well, her husband died. So what happened? She went into bitterness, just like Naomi, and she said, God doesn't care about us. He doesn't hear our prayers. Uh, He isn't faithful. I'm done with him. She went away from uh, any association with the church, with God's people, any activity with the word. She was done because God didn't do what she worked up the faith to think that God had to do. Unfortunately, I know several people who have taken that path. It's very, very tragic and very, very sad. Let's talk for a little bit about faith. When faith enters the story of Ruth, everything changes. You notice that from the end of chapter one. With her sevenfold declaration or commitment that she is going to follow the God of Israel, that your God will be my God, that faith changes everything. And the story begins to turn because we see God beginning to supply her faith. If you think of faith uh, as a pipeline, you know, if the pipeline is clogged or if the pipeline is shut down, then no supplies get through. When the pipeline is open, when we are receptive to whatever God has for us, particularly his word, we are going to see that God is at work in our life, that he takes everything seriously, he cares about all of our concerns, and he is going to provide for us according to his perfect will. So, if you will, hold your place here in Ruth. Let's talk a little about faith. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. Xander was just asking me, what is my favorite book in the Bible? That's always a difficult decision for me to make because all of them are my favorite at various times, but I would probably say the book of Romans, and Romans talks about the object of our faith. I want you to understand a principle at the beginning. What makes for a strong faith the object of that faith? In other words, your faith will only be as strong as the object of your faith. Faith is an objective verb. You are having faith not in faith. You're having faith in something. Now the question is, is that which you're having faith in capable of fulfilling your hopes and your expectations? When we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or we put our faith in God's Word, we know that we have an object for our faith that is capable of fulfilling what God says He will fulfill. We trust in Him because He is trustworthy. We have faith because He is faithful. And generally, we tend to think of the initial focus of our faith being the gospel. And that's where we first learn about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. And so I just want to, at the very beginning, this is what Paul lays as the foundation for this great book called the book of Romans. And I just want to look at a few verses here in chapter one. Just start with me in verse one. Paul, a bond bondservant. Bondservant uh, can mean a born slave or in the Old Testament sense. It's the pierced ear slave. It's the willing and voluntary slave who loves his master. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto, and here it is, the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? We know that gospel simply means good news. There are a lot of different kinds of good news in the Bible. We're talking here about a specific aspect of of good news. It is the good news which he promised before through his prophets in the holy scriptures. If you go back to Isaiah 53, you see Christ and you see the crucifixion. As a matter of fact, many Jews will not allow. I used to know a guy that worked in a Jewish high school. Every day they would have a scripture reading at the beginning of the school over the intercom. They asked him, even though he was a Gentile, They asked him if he would read a scripture from the Old Testament. He picked Isaiah 53 and he got fired. You don't read that passage to Jewish children. Unless you look at the servant as Israel, not the Messiah. But he promised this gospel. He promised this marvelous message of life and hope in his prophets in the Holy Scriptures and I want you to notice verse 3 and 4 concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead what is the central figure of the gospel Jesus Christ what is the primary truth about Jesus Christ he is God in human flesh he is God who became man for the purpose of bringing us eternal life. Through him, Paul says in verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. To whom is the gospel supposed to go? Who is the gospel for? Paul says everyone. It's for all nations. And it is designed to bring People from all the nations to the obedience of faith. This is where a lot of people go astray as they're defining faith. They say faith means obedience. What is the obedience that Paul is talking about? Obedience to the faith. The phrase the faith refers to the content of the gospel. That's what he's laying out so carefully for us here in the beginning of the book of Romans. So obedience to the faith, that is the content of what is to be believed, is what? Faith. Obedience to, let's say, here is the record of our faith. How can I be obedient to this faith? Believe it. Simply believe it. That's what Paul is saying. The obedience of faith among all nations for his name. If you would, just drop down to verse 14. Paul says, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. If you want to jot down just a few things to help define the faith. Number one, it's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he lays out for us in the beginning verses of this chapter. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Made of the seed of David, that's his humanity. Declared to be the son of God with power, that's his deity. God and man united together to be our savior Not only is it all about Jesus Christ, but it is for all people. There is no one in the world who is not a target for the gospel. Christ died for all men, and the gospel is to go to all men. The whole story of missions is the effort of men and women throughout history, and we really, I see your mission board back there at the back, and it's always wonderful to come into a church and see a focus on missions. Because that is our command our commission is missions to carry the gospel to the world but unfortunately we are ignorant of much missionary activity that has happened through the ages most people don't know that at one time Africa was the Christian center of the world the strongest churches The greatest missionary activity was happening out of North Africa in the second century, going all over the world. If we study carefully, we find that there were missionaries, even if you just take the initial uh, apostles themselves, Thomas went as far as Eastern India. There is actually a tomb to Thomas in Eastern India. I've been there. He crossed all the areas in between carrying the gospel clear over into eastern India. Uh, People were surprised in the 6th century, they dug up some tablets, uh, or not in the 6th century, I think it was 1925, they dug up tablets from the 6th century in China, central China. What they found was that central China at that time had received the gospel from missionaries that came to them and the gospel was spreading to millions and millions of people. Uh, If you read the book, uh, The Day Christ Died, um, Bishop someone, I forget his name right now, but The Day Christ Died, he points out that in the generation before the birth of Jesus Christ, there were prophets as far away as China, uh, as far as Persia, uh, as far as Africa, There were prophets all over the world who had made the prophecy that there is a Savior coming into the world. We know, of course, that the wise men came out of Persia, and they came out of Persia probably because of the influence coming down to them through Daniel, and they came because they said, we have seen his star. So my point is, missions has gone out to areas that we often think of as untouched. Uh, there's a guy named Richards. I don't know why I can never remember his first name. Uh, he wrote a book called Eternity in Their Hearts. Uh, he was involved in missions in a very wide scale around the world. He did a intensive study of the cultures of all the places that he went. And he said, I never found a culture that did not have evidence that the gospel had been there before. They had heard the gospel, they had turned to the gospel at some point, and then in a course of time, they turned around. If time was to go on a few hundred years, you might be surprised that people would show up in America and think these people were heathen, they never had the gospel. Simply because it's ignored, and then it's deleted from all references, and you look and you say, well, it was never here. We simply don't know. But I can promise you this. When Paul says the gospel is for the whole world, and by the way, when he writes the book of Colossians, I believe it's in Colossians, um, it's in the first or the second chapter, he mentions that the gospel had already gone out to the whole world. We have no record of some of the missionary activity at that time. But just stressing, the gospel is for all men. The gospel changes men. I want you to see how it changed the Apostle Paul. I want you to look at verse 14 and 15 and 16. Paul says, I am a debtor. I am a debtor. In other words, I have an obligation because of the grace of God given to me. I am indebted to other people. I am a debtor, not just to the people I like, not just to the cultured Greeks, but also to the barbarians, the crude, the uneducated. Those people I am a debtor to, to the wise as well as the unwise. Notice in verse 15, not only does he say I'm a debtor, I am ready. I am ready. This is a declaration of his willingness to go wherever God opened the door for him. My wife and I have been in a lot of different places and I can tell you our conviction is there is no such thing as a place that is closed to the gospel. We hear all the time, this country is closed to the gospel. No, it isn't. It's just difficult. It's not closed. You can get in there and you can give the gospel and you can bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but it might cost you. Could cost you your life. I think we often think of North Korea as the most closed place to the gospel. Uh, Many years ago, the children in the church that we started in Australia were donating to a ministry in South Korea, and the ministry in South Korea would blow up balloons, they blow them up with helium, and they would put gospel tracks on them and turn them loose, and the prevailing winds are to the north, and thousands and thousands and thousands of those gospel tracts were going and the little kids uh, in the Sunday school, some of them were so devoted to it, they would give up Christmas presents in order to be able to give money so that those balloons could be sent over into North Korea. There are always ways. So I am ready, Paul says. I am a debtor. I am ready. And I want you to notice in verse 16, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed. Of the gospel of Christ. So we know that it's all about Christ. We know that it's all about his humanity and his deity. We know that it is for all nations. We know that it should change our lives. Each other should be a debtor and ready and unashamed of the gospel. And what do we need to understand about it? It is the power of God to salvation. The gospel has the power to save. It is a message That brings eternal life. It has the power to save. And then finally in verse 17, it never stands still. In it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Uh, Various theologians and expositors and commentators have wrestled over the uh, faith to faith issue Some take it from God's faithfulness to our faith. Uh, Others take it, as I do, from saving faith to living faith as we continue on walking by faith. But it never stands still. It's always on the move. It's always making progress. And then finally, Paul quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, the just shall live by faith. It is the power for living. It is the power for life. When you think about Ruth and you think about her coming to the saving faith in the God of Israel, you see all of these things becoming elements in her life. She became a debtor. She was ready. She didn't go on a mission to a far foreign field. She served her mother-in-law. She did the hard task that needed to be done. And she made a difference in her and Naomi's life. And she was not ashamed to do that. If you would uh, just turn from this to 1st John 1st John ever since the day that I trusted Christ has always been a beautiful book to me, particularly the 5th chapter. 1st John chapter 5 continuing with the idea of the victory of faith the conquest of faith first john 5 whoever believes that jesus is the christ is born of god that's a promise whoever believes that jesus is the christ remember the thief hanging on the cross He couldn't undo the evil that he had done. He couldn't go and join a church. He couldn't go and get baptized. There was nothing he could do. But he turned to the Lord and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And our Lord's promise to him was today. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. That man received eternal life simply based on what john says here whoever believes that jesus is the christ is born of god and everyone who loves him who begot loves him who is begotten i want you to notice verse 4 whatever is born of god overcomes the world you remember when jesus said to the disciples in the world you will have tribulation Be of good cheer. That's kind of a strange thing to tell people, isn't it? In the world, you're going to have sorrow, suffering, affliction, temptations, trials. But be of good cheer. Well, the be of good cheer was not based on the sufferings they were going to go through. It was based on what came next. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. No, Paul says in Romans 8... 37, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. The very fact that we have trusted in him makes us a victor on the stage of human history. Victorious faith is a wonderful thing. Whatever is born of God, we would say whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This world is dying. John has already told us in 1 John chapter 2. The world and all of its works is passing away. This world is going to be gone. Everything that you see around you, there's going to come a day when it's all going to be gone. But we have overcome the world through our faith. Verse 5, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If you're here as a young believer, maybe some of you young ones, and you haven't had the opportunity to grow or to go on missions or to serve in various ways, the very fact that you trust in Jesus Christ has already made you victorious over the world. He who believes in Him has overcome the world. Drop down with me. To verse 10, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar. When someone rejects the gospel, they're basically saying God is a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. Verse 11, this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. You know, John really is focused on this you can read all the way through the gospel of john you read through first second third john even when you get into the book of revelation the thing that impressed john the most is that god gave us eternal life as a free gift simply to be received by faith now we'll talk about grace here in a minute remember god's faithfulness produces two things grace and faith. We're going to see that in just a moment. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's that simple. Do you have the Son of God? If you have the Son of God, you have his life. John says in verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may reasonably feel sure that you have eternal life, right? Mm -hmm. I've written these things to you so that you might hope and guess that you might have eternal life. You know, when I trusted Christ at the age of 15 in 1965, I mentioned it earlier down at Cumberland Bible Church, Butler County, I was confused about a lot of things, as we often are when we first come to Christ. We don't know anything. We haven't had a lot of teaching. And so as the pastor there uh, explained to me the way of eternal life, and you know, we, we often make a mistake by telling people, pray to receive eternal life. If you stop and think about it, if you're praying to receive it, you already have it. You ever think about that? If you're praying to receive it, you've already believed it, haven't you? You receive it because you believe it, not because you said a certain prayer with certain words. I like to compare it to breathing. We inhale. Uh, If you've ever seen a baby being born, Nan had four of ours at home, and so I was able to witness the birth, and I've noticed something about babies being born. I have never seen a baby born that went... I've never seen a baby exhale. When God created Adam, what did he do to make him a living being? He breathed into him the breath of life. And when a baby comes into the world and they inhale, then they exhale. That first breath. Believing the gospel is our first spiritual breath. We receive the truth. That's the inhale, and we express our faith. Paul talks about it in Romans 10. You remember he talks about believing in the heart and confessing with the mouth. Believing in the heart is what gives eternal life. Confessing with the mouth is the expression of either gratitude or appreciation for it or witness to someone else about it. Anyway... Because I was confused on this, the pastor, after we spoke and after we prayed, he said, do you know you're going to heaven? And I said, I sure hope so. He said, you're not leaving here until you know so. <laughs> I didn't know how long that was going to take. It's going to be an all-day affair. He brought me to this passage, and it was just such a brilliant move on his part. And he took me to verse 13 and he said, now I want you to read verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And he stopped me. He said, do you believe in the name of the Son of God? I said, I sure do. I had no doubt about that at all. He said, go on and read that you may know that you have eternal life. He said, do you have eternal life? And I said, I sure do. And he said, how do you know? And I said, because this verse tells me that if I believe in the Son of God, I can know. And he laid the foundation for my confidence not to be in my performance, how well I was doing, how I was feeling on the day or anything else. My confidence rested securely on the promise of God. What a brilliant move that man made. And I have to tell you, my faith has been tried severely and... It was a great move that he did on that day because it has helped me uh, through many, many things. Faith is so important for us to understand, and it's faith that gives us the victory as we come back to Ruth chapter 2. We're going to have to move along here to get this chapter done. Boaz commends her for coming under the wings of the Lord. Verse 13, she said, let me find favor in your sight. Now we're back to that word. We've been seeing it over and over and over. Favor refers to grace. I'm going to come back to it. I want to develop it a little bit because if I say to you, have grace. Or if I say to you, enjoy grace. Or if I speak of the Infinite grace of God. Do you really know what I'm talking about? We know that grace means undeserved or unmerited favor. But what is that undeserved and unmerited favor? We want to come back and we want to just hit on that a little bit. But let's move on before we do that. Verse 14, Boaz said to her at mealtime, come here and eat the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. Now, Once again, he is giving her exceptional privilege. Very unusual for a rich landowner, a man who has many people working under him, to reach out to the lowliest person there. Not even one of his workers, not one of what he calls his young maidens. Here is a stranger, a foreigner. And yet he is pulling her in to the provisions that he has made for his workers And he tells her to come, and it says that she sat beside the reapers and he passed parched grain to her. Very unusual that he would personally pass that grain to her. In other words, he's buying her lunch. He's providing her something to eat. She probably had nothing. He's bringing her in, embracing her within his household, as it were, and he's providing her food to eat. He passed Mark's grain to her and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. Why did she keep some back? You know how, when you go to a restaurant, you can't hold it all, uh, or you want to save some, you have them bring you a little box, right? Well, this is where it all began. Boaz, they called it a box of Boaz. This is the leftover lunch. Nan and I had the opportunity of treating about I don't know, 20 or 30 African Bible students to a meal in a restaurant. They had never, none of them had ever, ever been inside a restaurant. When they walked in the door, they looked around like, what are we supposed to do now? And we had them set a long table and these Bible students sat there and we ordered for each of them. I said, just let me order, otherwise it would have been chaos. And I ordered for each of them a half a chicken and a salad. They brought the chicken and the salad, they looked at it and their eyes got as big as saucers because they had not seen that much meat at a time for a long, long time. These were poor African people. And they said, they pointed at the salad and they said, Is this what they call salad? We said, Yeah. They said, We've never seen it before. Mm-hmm salad. So you know what each and every one of them did? They ate a little of the chicken and a little of the salad and they said, can we take some home? We said, yeah. I said, not only can you take some home, they'll give you a box. They brought boxes for everyone. They all took the leftover chicken and the leftover salad because they knew at home was a husband, a wife, children, who had never in their life seen food like that. This is, you need to understand that for Ruth, it's about that big a thing, that this rich, mighty landowner would stoop down. You know what the challenge should be to you and I? Who are we to be so special that we can't stoop to somebody who's in need? Why do we disregard people who are around us all the time? We see them on the street, We see them in the grocery store. How many times have you seen someone standing at a grocery counter? I've seen it many, many times. Well, I'll have to put this back because I don't have enough money. Have you ever stepped forward and said, hey, I'll cover it? Have you ever sat in a restaurant and looked over and seen a mother with a crippled child sitting there having a meal and said to the waitress, come over here. I want to pay for their meal. Why don't we do this? What's the matter with us? We are surrounded by needy people all the time and we don't stir ourselves up out of our comfort zone to go out of our way. I was with a fellow pastor in Hot Springs, Arkansas one time and uh, we came into a restaurant and there was a lady that was there that was just terribly crippled in a wheelchair and yet she was smiling and she was speaking to people uh, around her, people that she didn't know, she was cheerful And I remember walking over and I just knelt down by her uh, wheelchair and I said, you have a very special kind of courage. I said, you are a bright light to each and every one of us. And she said, well, thank you. And I got up and I walked back over and the pastor said, what did you say to her? And I told him and he said, I could never do that. Why not? What's wrong with us? We need to learn to humble ourselves. Boaz is humbling himself here as he cares for this poor widow who has suffered the loss of everything. When she rose up to glean, verse 15, Boaz commanded his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, do not reproach her. Let grain from the bundles fall purposely. This is handfuls on purpose. This is a little phrase that people have picked up and often used. We should be dropping handfuls on purpose we should be letting some of the bounty, some of the blessing, some of the good things that God has given to us slip through our fingers to those who are around us. You ever stay in a motel room? You ever stop and think about the ladies that clean motel rooms? Most of them single mothers with kids at home. Do you ever leave a tip when you stay in a hotel room? I know Christians who don't tip. They say, I don't tip. It's their job to do what they're doing. What in the world is wrong with us? Why not leave a tip and leave a track? I'll tell you the thing that is most horrible, and I, you won't believe how many waiters and waitresses I've heard this from. The day they hate to work is Sunday. And the reason they hate to work on Sunday is because that's when Christians come after church is out. And you know what they've told me, and I can't tell you how many I've talked to because I talked to the waiters and waitresses that serve us and I ask them these questions and they all say Christians leave tracks that look like a $100 bill and here I am struggling to feed my kids and I'm getting whatever they're getting paid and they leave me a tract that looks like money all that does is turn them against everything that we profess to believe if you're going to leave a tract that looks like money stuff a $20 bill inside of it Do something, show some kind of courtesy and respect. Boaz challenges each and every one of us. Verse 17 says, she gleaned in the field until evening and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. Uh, There are different estimates of what an ephah is. Some people say a bushel, some people say a gallon, whatever it is, it was a lot of grain. Verse 18, she took it up and went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought it and gave gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. In other words, her leftover lunch is now supper for Naomi. Her mother-in-law said to her, where have you gleaned today? She recognizes immediately that she got more than she expected. And Where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Stop and think about one thing. Did you notice that Naomi just uttered a prayer? You know that God considers some of the things we say a prayer when we don't? Blessed be he of the Lord. Blessed be the one who took notice of you. She's going to mention it both in verse 19 and verse 20. In verse 19, she doesn't know. In verse 20, she knows who he is. Did you ever stop and think that when you show kindness to someone, that they might be uttering a prayer that could make a difference in your life? God bless the person who showed this kindness to me. God help this person, whatever they may be going through. Do you have all the prayers you need? Are you so rich in the prayers of other people that you don't need any more people asking for God to bless you? I don't know about you, but I can use all the prayers I can get. Maybe if we did things that blessed people, they would pray that God would bless us. I sometimes stop because stories start flitting through my mind of all the people And all the places and all the things that we've seen as we've traveled around. And it's like, I ought to tell this story, but now I'm going to be off on a rabbit trail. We just need to move on. Notice verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. He's actually closer than you might think, as we're going to find out when we get to chapter four. But the phrase close relative in the Hebrew is goel. And goel means a kinsman redeemer. You remember when someone, if someone killed someone accidentally, they would flee to the city of refuge because the avenger of blood would be after them. That was the goel. The Goel had the responsibility to deal with any injustice that was done to the family. And in this case, the Goel is the kinsman redeemer, the one who can redeem the lost property of Naomi and restore to Ruth her uh, family, home, uh, self-respect, everything else. So much involved in it. Verse 21, Ruth the Moabitess said, he also said to me, you shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and the end of the wheat harvest. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. This whole chapter is a chapter that just breathes of the grace of God. And I want to just touch briefly on the importance of grace. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we might get over to Titus chapter 1, but let's at least come to this marvelous passage. I never get tired. I don't know how many times... I've read these passages; they're always new and fresh. When you think of Ephesians two, what do you think of? Any verse come to mind? Eight and nine. Ephesians two, eight and nine. And Ephesians two, eight and nine says, "For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves; it is a gift of God, not of works." lest any should boast, right? Would you believe it that the most important word in those verses is the word that? I'll give you a parallel. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have Everlasting life. You know what the most important word in that verse is? The little word, so. We overlook little words that are sometimes the most critical words. God, so, that is, in such a manner, God in this way loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And here we have, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that, not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. What does the that modify? Believe it or not, there are brilliant doctors uh, of theology who can't figure this out. What does the that modify? You know what they'll tell you? they'll tell you that the that refers to the word faith. Faith is not of yourselves. Faith is a gift of God. That is not what the text is saying. That is a completely distorted view of the text. In order to understand what the that refers to, we have to look at a little key that Paul gave us, that should have tipped us off back up to verse 4. In uh, the first three verses, he's talking about how we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of the world, uh, we were guided by the spirit of disobedience, uh, we conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. We were children of wrath, all of these horrible things, and then this great conjunction of contrast. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love. Notice that mercy is the result of love, the love of God. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he did three things. What are the three things that God did out of his great love? Number one, he made us alive together with Christ. You'll notice there's a little parenthetical phrase, by grace you have been saved. And then on the other side of the parenthetical phrase, he raised us up together. He made us alive, that's resurrection life. He raised us up, that is resurrection, and he made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. Three things define what it means to be saved. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be made alive. It means to be raised up from death. And it means to be seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places. And right in the middle of those, Paul puts a little parenthetical phrase, by grace you have been saved. What does it mean to be saved? It means those three things. Made alive, raised up, and seated with Christ. By the way, if you believe you can lose your salvation, you're calling God a liar. Do you know why? Because not only did he give you eternal life, and believe it or not, eternal means eternal, and eternal means no end. But when he gave you eternal life, he also positionally seated you with Christ at his right hand. People ask me, ask me all the times, how can you be so sure that you're going to make it through to eternal life? I say, because I've already got it and I'm already seated with Christ in heaven. In the mind of God, we're already there. We are in the position that Christ is in at the right hand of God the Father. That's what it means to be saved. So when we come down now to verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. What does save mean? Well, he just defined it for us. It means made alive, raised up, and seated together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved through what? Simple childlike faith. And that What does that refer to? Well, it refers to what it means to be saved, which goes back to verse four and five, made alive, raised up, and seated together. That is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Doesn't that make the whole passage make more sense? Instead of struggling, is faith the gift? Is grace the gift? By the way, neither faith nor grace can be the gift because the word that is neuter. Say, so what does that mean? Well, it, what it modifies has to either be neuter or has to be a series. Could be masculine, feminine, either one. And so you take the whole series and refer to it as a neuter. Grace is feminine. Faith is feminine. Neither can be referred to in the neuter. But saved in a series of propositions can. I don't know if that confuses you, but it's something that we need to understand. By grace we have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It, that is, salvation is a gift of God. Turn from there, we've got just a couple of minutes, to the little book of Titus. It's important that we understand these things and get them clear in our minds. The little book of Titus, First and 2 Timothy and... Titus. When I was going through Bible college, my third year of Bible college, before I graduated, I was in a pastoral program. You had to pick a text and preach the text to the students. The passage that you have before you in Titus chapter 2 is the passage that I chose. I want you to notice in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to some men no it has appeared to all men Paul tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 God is not willing that any perish he tells us in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 4 and 5 God desires that all men come to the knowledge of the truth I think I said 2 Timothy I believe that's First Timothy <coughs> God desires all men to come to the knowledge of the truth. Notice what does grace do? Since we're talking about grace, we're talking about the kindness that Boaz showed to Ruth, and we're talking about something that is not a human quality. This is not something we can produce. It's only something that we can receive and reflect. Boaz was the kind of man he was because Boaz lived by faith. The just shall live by faith. And what does faith lay hold of? Faith is the hand of man reaching out to lay hold of that which God offers, which is his grace. So the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What does it do? Verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. If we're learning anything from grace, we should be learning this. It teaches us and by that teaching, transforms our life. How did Paul say our lives are transformed? By the renewing of your mind. How is my mind going to be renewed? Through the teaching of God's word. It teaches us, you know, it does us no good as pastors to stand in front of a group of people and say, you need to be godly Christians. You need to be sanctified Christians. We need Christians that are living godly lives. All of that means absolutely nothing if we're not teaching them what they need because you know what? They can't. They can't do it and neither can we. We can't produce those things in our life. Only the Spirit of God given the working materials to transform our life that come from the Word of God, the building blocks of the character of Christ come from the Word of God. And when we teach people Don't tell them what to do, show them how. How do we do it? I remember being so confused as a young Christian, being told Christians ought to do this, or if you're really saved, you're going to do this, or real Christians always do this. And I'd think, I thought I was a real Christian, but I still do that. What's wrong with me? But I was never told how until I finally came under a pastor who really understood how to teach the word of God and he started teaching me the how and it changed my life. Verse 13, very important. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. You know what the greatest motivator to a pastor to continue faithfully teaching the word this right here you know what the greatest motivation is for a Christian to delve into the word and get serious about living the Christian life Christ is coming back he's coming back and we're going to face him we're going to answer for our life we're going to stand before him it's a one moment everybody would like to have a private moment with Jesus we're going to get it we're going to stand before him and we're going to give an answer for our life It's called the judgment seat of Christ. And the question is going to be not did how did your neighbor, or what did you think of the preacher, or how well do you think the missionary did? The question is going to be a simple one. Here it is, and I hope it burns its way into our soul. What did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with what I gave you? Looking for the blessed hope. And the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, notice who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That's what grace does in our life. It changes who we are and it changes how we think and how we live. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are for grace How thankful we are that through grace we receive truth. How thankful we are that you've given us the ability to receive that truth in simple childlike faith. As Boaz showed such kindness and courtesy and protection and provision to Ruth, to a much, much greater degree, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great kinsman redeemer, came into this world in order to show kindness to us how we thank you for his sacrifice, how we thank you for his provisions that are made because of it and how we thank you for all that you choose to do and will do in and through us if we simply humble ourselves and become your servants. Let us become a Ruth gleaning in the fields of Boaz. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.